G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast Summer Edition. I'm Rowan Connolly, Mark Fine with me as per usual. A cavalcade of sport going on in Melbourne town, around Australia and around the globe. We're here to talk about all that and a lot, lot more as I say a very good morning to my co-host. How are you Fine? Well, others may be holidaying publicly but we're not. Oh, never any rest for us. We're here. We're here and we are keen to bring, not the completion of Marsh series because there's a a couple of games to go still, but we look forward to the season proper now. We've just about got everything in place. Well, you know, this is uh, in Victoria anyway. This is Labor Day and the the motto there was eight hours work, eight hours rest, eight hours play. It's just 24 hours work for us. Don't you worry about that. In fact, I'm about ready to drop... Such have been the logistics of putting things together, but uh, we may touch on that a little bit later. Uh, I'll tell you what else we should touch on before we go any further, our wonderful sponsors. Burgers are not burgers are not burgers. There is a, there is a hierarchy in this town, in this country, and at the top of the tree consistently are our great sponsors, Andrew's Hamburgers. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. That has been their home for virtually 81 years now. Now, this is a long time to be knocking out burgers. I imagine back in 1940, thereabouts, they were revolutionary, these burgers. The Americans probably gave them the idea, those encamped at the MCG. But today, it's nothing more than a good, honest, true Aussie burger with all those elements that Rowan quite rightly, lords every week. The buns, the crisp, firm, but still giving buns, the sumptuous meat patties uh, just melt in your mouth, the fresh salad ingredients, just uh, the water water glistening glistening on the surface of them. I'm beginning to learn. Oh, yes. Uh, Cheese, uh, bacon, you name it, any uh, sort of topping you want on those burgers, they will provide. Andrew's Hamburgers, they don't come any better. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. I'll tell you what, I don't know about you, Fonny, but every time I head down to Andrew's for a burger and I'm sitting there out in the street contemplating life on a beautiful Melbourne early autumn morning and I think, you know what I should do? I should renovate my house. If you live in an inner city suburb, uh, Albert Park, South Melbourne, Middle Park, and then further on down the... Beaconsfield Parade along the beach and inwards as well. If you want the best joint, then you go to West Point. West Point Properties, Nick Spartel's their principal, have a history of renovation and building the highest quality. He's got such an eye for detail, really. I've been in to a couple of his domiciles that he has built, and they are... Were they very domicilic? They were very... Dyson Heppelick, actually, <laughs> and just a beautiful, beautiful build 
on a small but you know prestigious block of land in that inner city stretch and boy does he make the best of it with top quality fittings and i tell you what not impossible now given another interest rate drop at our feet and thanks once again also to online retail and auction company Grays online who offer a huge range of consumer and industrial goods direct from manufacturers their amazing offer for footyology listeners still on till the end of this month those special voucher codes we've told you about will allow you to claim $30 off any purchase of more than $50 use the codes either roco r o c o or finey f i n e y to claim all sorts of fantastic offers from Grays Online. There's a huge range of stuff. I've had a look through it, finally, from $2 bottles of wine to $2 million cranes, everything in between, TVs, homewares, white goods, power tools, nearly every auction starting at just $9. So jump online, check out all the bargains, use those voucher codes, though, ROCO, R-O-C-O, or finey, F-I-N-E-Y, to get $30 off any purchase of more than $50 at Grays Online. All right, that's enough spruiking. I reckon it's time we got into it. On Footyology, Newsfeed. All right, let's kick off with AFLW round five over the weekend. Three games to go before the finals. And a quick run through the conferences. Conference A, North Melbourne looking the goods. They are having a great season, the Roos. Uh, played five, won four, only lost the one game. Out on top, a game clear of Brisbane. Um, who, Sorry, half a game clear of Brisbane, who have three wins and a draw so far. The one loss, and that came yesterday against the undefeated Fremantle, who are in Conference B. GWS going pretty well, three wins. And uh, minor chance now, still an outside chance only for Geelong and Adelaide, the dominant force in AFLW. They're going to struggle to be there this year, just the two wins for them. Forget about Gold Coast, Richmond. And in Conference B, Freo out on top, a game clear, undefeated, five wins from five starts. Melbourne and Carlton next in line with four wins. Uh, you've got Collingwood on three wins, and forget the rest. The Bulldogs, St Kilda, and West Coast, all only with one win. And despite brave showings, the four debutants this season all occupy, in both conferences, the two bottom positions. Understandable, and I think as the season wears, it may even be more testing for them, as the they're not experienced in even an eight-game season, but I think you hit the nail on the head with North Melbourne, my friend. Yes. Uh, yeah, look, I saw just to what you were saying, I saw Melbourne absolutely clinically demolish West Coast out at Casey. That was uh, a little bit ugly. I think the new sides have overall been at least competitive. The Saints have had a couple of narrow losses. I, th- I think the Saints have been really good. Yeah, I, I think Gold Coast have been all right too. They've yep. got a win and a draw and a, a couple of narrow defeats. And funnily enough, Richmond, the only side yet to win a game. They've had their moments as well, really pushed along last week. But yep. um, you did mention North Melbourne. They were just awesome down in Tassie at North Hobart Oval. Fixed up the reigning premiers, the Crows, 9-9-63 to Adelaide, 3-3-21. Power pack set up. Uh, Ashmore for them kicked four goals. Abitangelo and Garner. A couple of each, and actually that scoreline was even worse. It was nine goals to one before a couple of late cheapies from the Crows. So 
Uh, not great for Adelaide fans, but uh, it's got to be a, a vindication of where this competition is going because the balance of power is shifting and I think everyone's becoming a bit better. Well, I, I really, in watching North Melbourne play, I think their forward line setup is the most potent of any team in the competition and I really feel as though they've got and starting to generate the sort of scoring power of an AFL side. Mm. So... It's great to see that the best of the developing teams are also scoring through that development. It's not like they're more defensive or better set up to stop scores. I really feel North Melbourne are as competent as a men's team in scoring. Well, maybe, maybe more so. Well, it was, a, it was a good weekend for scoring, wasn't it? GWS, only in accuracy prevented them uh, racking up a huge score against Richmond, 7-14. 56, uh, Cora Staunton, four goals for them. And Privatelli, who's bobbed up late in the season to be yep. very handy up forward. She got a couple. Um, but 45-point uh, victors over Richmond. And uh, the other big scores, we saw uh, Carlton, Carlton, Carlton 8-250. Um, but even in defeat, the Saints, 4-5-29. That was pretty competitive. Collingwood, 8-5 against the Western Bulldogs. And the Demons, as I mentioned, uh, just doing a number on West Coast at Casey, 10-6-66, and their goals are spread around uh, pretty handy. Should mention Fremantle, though. They just go from strength to strength. Very, very hard to beat at home. And Brisbane are a very good side, but um, Freo dispense with them reasonably comfortably. Pretty dour second half, but the damage was done by half time when the Dockers led by three goals. Uh, Duffy with four goals. She's a real sharp shooter around uh, the big sticks. And they are looking, you'd say at this stage, you'd have your money on a, a Fremantle North grand final, would you not? No, not, um, <clears throat> pardon me, not for mine. I'm going to go North Carlton. Oh, you reckon Freo miss out despite not winning a game? Yep. Okay. Not losing a game, yep. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Who's going to upset <laughs> yeah. them? Are you thinking... Are you thinking of the AFL? No, no, I think they're better than that. We'll get to that. But <laughs> who, who, who's going to upset the Dockers, Carlton. do you think? Okay. I like Carlton. No, they're, they're very there. solid under uh, under our mate Daniel Harford. He's done a fantastic uh, job with the Blues. Yep. Isn't it great to see um, footy being played at Icon Park too, by the way, speaking yeah, of the Blues? And we'll get on to that shortly. But they had a weekend. I've got to say, I can't see why they can't play football there, actually. Oh, I think the attendance might be a, the capacity is About what twenty thousand. Yeah, absolute 25th. tops. Yeah, I reckon twenty tops really. You know, Geelong have survived. They've made improvements, but when they first went back to Cardinia Park, it was not a lot more than twenty thousand. Yeah, no, true. They, they turned seats into a premium and made it uh, expensive to go, but turned a profit in doing so. It's funny, isn't it, uh, how the wheel turns, and uh, in a lot of ways, everything old is new again, so people have a hankering to get back to the suburban venues. Uh, today, incidentally, well, today being Monday, March the 9th, uh, exactly 20 years to the day that uh, what is now known as Marvel Stadium hosted its first ever game, Essendon, Did, against Port Adelaide. Yeah, that's right. A uh, good piece by Tom Morris on Fox Sports about that, the various calamities that ensued. Uh, you forget sort of how troubled those early years were. In that very first season, they were forced to move 
a game between St Kilda and Hawthorne. Yep. Uh, Craig Hutchison uh, infamously dubbed it Death Valley and got suspended on air when he was at uh, from being on air when he was at Channel Seven. Uh, we've had uh, issues with the turf; they've been ongoing. It was interesting though. They spoke to Nick Rewald about it, and he said that the um, just in the last couple of years, the the turf is a lot, lot better, uh, a lot more giving it, I think, so we're not hearing nearly as many complaints about the surface, and I think that's right. Do you, um, they spoke to Mike Sheehan too, and he was uh, still pretty lukewarm about the venue. I mean, when you consider Waverley got axed for Docklands, do, do, you, do you rate the, the venue? Do you hate it? Do you like it? Are you ambivalent about it? No, look, I actually like it. When St Kilda were at their best and hopefully they're on the improve. I think it suits a team that can move the ball and play with some confidence. It also, what what I think it's done for football negatively is it allows, because of the pristine conditions, it allows pre-planning and coaching to be done to a fine, you know, to, to an absolute fine art. And a lot of that is defensive planning. So, Players seem to cover the ground more easily at Etihad Stadium. I don't know why, but they're able to set up those defensive um, walls and really crowd the play very quickly and very easily there. Often a case, unfortunately, what was promising to be a high-scoring ground quickly became the lowest, uh, potentially, you know, when St Kilda wanted to do it uh, under Ross Lyon, they just could easily make it the lowest scoring ground in the competition in a bad watch of football. As far as the comforts of the crowd, it's not that comfortable. It's funny how you can be under the roof and freezing cold, but <laughs> the wind belts through there through those two big openings at either end. Yeah, look, I, I've got to say, I, I think the good outweighs the bad. I mean, it's I still have trouble telling which ends which. You know, there's a sort of... Uh, What's the word? A, a sameness about it. That, uh, but I, I think the atmosphere uh, with a decent-sized crowd can be really loud. I enjoy yep. that. I enjoy the fact that you know when it's belting with rain, you can still get a decent quality game. Although that has its issues in terms of uh, whether sides that play there get enough preparation in adverse conditions. Um, you know, there's been some there's been some great games there as well. I, look, I'm you know I don't know. I, I just I was thinking about it. I thought if Waverley still existed, uh, would I be enjoying Waverley? And Waverley, it was funny how we came to romanticise a ground that we hated for so long. It, it was, Waverley. and it was also played to a point of dilapidation with a scoreboard half operational. Seats splintering. I mean, Waverley was not loved by the time Hawthorne played that last game against Sydney. Isn't it funny how you, you look back? I remember when the um, that sort of uh, sepia sort of uh, replay facility on the Waverley scoreboard first happened. I reckon it was, it was exciting, wasn't it? Was it was about nineteen eighty one, and and it, yeah, how exciting it was. And we thought, oh wow, this is cutting edge technology. <laughs> and you look at it now. Well, then again, it is nearly forty years ago, so you'd hope that technology had advanced a bit since then. All right, we're going to talk about the Marsh pre-season series, Weekend 3, and the last we're going to see of these teams before it all gets underway just a week and a half away now. Uh, interesting weekend of footy, every side playing, of course, in Week 3, and some very interesting results we're going to go through now. 
uh, kicked off with... Can go- I start with a question before we look at the game? Certainly. Can you win Mark of the Year in ah, yes. the Marsh Series? Sydney Stack, what a ripper over Toby Green. <laughs> ah, beauty. It was. It was a, a, a ball terror of a mark, that one, and we'll see it hopefully replayed a fair bit during the year. Uh, Gold Coast got up over Adelaide, uh, seven-point victors. And you can't fault the Suns pre-season. They smashed Geelong and they've beaten Adelaide now in Adelaide. Uh, really good effort by them. And, and I thought, um, in fact, I thought most of the games were of a reasonably high standard. This one, probably not at the peak. But uh, a strong effort by the Suns. And I think um, about the one thing you could say about them last season under Stuart Dew, their, uh, their clearance contested ball work was often probably... It's their best suit, and I think they've certainly improved on that. A few of those younger guys, e.g. Will Brody, look a bit stronger and a bit more seasoned. Um, I think Smith coming back in the ruck is going to be a, a bit of a plus for them. Darcy McPherson, uh, who finished third in their best and fairest last year, he's a, become a really, really good on-baller for them. So um, certainly signs of improvement for the Suns. It's funny because, of course, he was eligible to play for the Western Bulldogs under mm. the father-son rule, though they needed any more midfielders anyhow. Yeah. But he might develop into a very good one. Do you feel Adelaide around the ball are a little bit um thin yeah uh, and 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 not not quick no they've never they've never been an overly quick side and yeah I, I do I I felt this last year and I'm not sure they've really sort of added to what's in store there for them around the ball look it's it's going to be it's not going to be an easy season for them uh, new coach Matthew Nix but they're in a, a transition period. They've had a, a massive clean out of a lot of senior players there. So, I, I reckon if Gold Coast kicking into fifty was more on point, they would have absolutely shamed Adelaide. Well, nine seventeen though, to nine ten, actually one by seven behind. So, yep. there's some truth in that. Look, they're two sides that I don't think are going to uh, threaten the eight uh, much, really, but. Um, Certainly, you know, from a, an improvement point of view and a competitiveness point of view, you'd have to be happy with what the Suns did there. I did enjoy that game. I, I've got to say, I didn't enjoy so much the game uh, down at Launceston between the Hawks and Demons. On paper, it looked pretty good, but it was a a pretty unskilled sort of scrap for the better part. And uh, in the end, the Demons, pretty uh, comprehensive victors, 12-9, 81 defeating the Hawks 6-13 in accuracy from them by 32 points uh, for the Demons. Well, big pluses there uh, in a couple of areas. Two recruits who you've been critical of them <laughs> picking up, but Adam Tomlinson and uh, Ed Langdon, I thought, both really impressive for them and really added something. And up forward, uh, which was a real sore point for them last year. Bailey Fritch and Jake Melksham combined for nine goals. So plenty of pluses there for the Demons. Yeah. Okay. So I agree. And Langdon certainly gets a lot of the ball and he's... And he's quick. And his running power will be very handy, especially on the wide wings at the MCG. I'm not completely sold on Tomlinson, but he certainly has the aerobic ability to do the same on the other wing. I'm not sure about his disposal yet. Gee, Wiedemann remains a tantalising prospect, but yet to deliver. They need one tall forward to sort of stand up and take those marks that 
they're going for, and Wiedemann needs to be that man. So that would be, I guess, a big plus. But I think it's a fair way off. What about the big? What, what I reckon a, the another big plus for them is Viney hitting yeah, this season. Field. Yeah, he was good. He looked really good to me. What about the big man in the Hawthorne goal space? The big recruit, Patton. Yeah, how's he going? Well, he was good against the Saints. Yeah, and. I think you've got to understand with Patton, he's not going to get a lot of the ball. It's just about him going back and kicking three or four goals a game. Isn't that his stock in trade? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I, he's obviously going to be value for them. Their concern, incidentally, speaking about key forwards, uh, Mitch Lewis rolled an ankle. I don't think it's too serious, but they'd, they'd want him up and running. And Gunston's not right for the start of the season. Mm. So that's. Look, Luke Bruce is in good touch. Compared to last year, he was just off a beat last year, but he looks ready to go for this season. I'm not sure about Puopolo anymore. Yeah, what? Uh, how do you think Mitchell's looking in he, his uh, comeback to senior footy? Look, he was really sharp in the first Marsh game, and I think they, you, you're going to have to accept with Tom Mitchell that there's it, it can't be the same output as he left the game with. He was getting 50 touches, you know, 50 possessions per game, winning the Brownlow medal. And he had a very serious break. Uh, we saw players like Nathan Brown and Matthew Maguire never come back from serious breaks. So I think that each game he plays comes with a recovery period that means that he's not going to be able to beat out those 40, 50 possessions every week. I, I do think the big potential upside for the Hawks this season, apart from Mitchell coming back, is Tom Scully. I think he's He looked, did uh, look good. Yeah, no, well, I think he's starting to look better and better. And when you look at that midfield, I mean, it, it's not seen as one of the great midfield groups, but you've got Mitchell coming back. If you've got Scully getting back to somewhere near his best, you've got Warple, who is now a senior member of that team Good and a player. best and fairest winner after two seasons. Uh, and Jay Gromira, who has just quietly sort of got back to the Jay Gromira that was, you know, the quality of player that everyone was salivating about a few years ago. That's a pretty handy midfield group, you an need, A-grade yep, group. It is. With Liam Shields, you've got six, I think, you know, quality midfielders. Then are we starting starting to search? I Look, I wasn't taken with Ollie Hanrahan's game, and he's one that has been touted as a likely starter in the best 22 at the start of the year. Yeah. And Chad Wingard's a disappointment to me in Hawthorne Colours. What do you make of him? Uh, yeah, well, it wasn't an auspicious debut last year. I, I think sometimes it takes guys to settle in. You know, it takes some time to settle in at a, a new club. But he's another one. They, they've got a sort of a, a posse of players from other clubs who have had a, a few quiet years or injury-afflicted injury years, and you sort of forget how good they can be. And that's where I'm getting at with Scully. I think the upside for the Hawks is pretty huge. Another, uh, I thought, high-quality game came between Port Adelaide and the Bulldogs. Port just getting over the line by 10 points, 14-11-95 to 13-7-85. Some injury issues, unfortunately, for the power, despite winning Charlie Dixon uh, with an adductor muscle. Uh, I think they'll be... Fingers crossed that he's okay because he's a, a huge part of their plan. He really plans. carries the forward line now, doesn't he? Absolutely. And Scott Lysette, a uh, bit of Achilles issue, but I, I think they're both going to be okay. So yeah. fingers crossed for them. But 
Uh, this was a high standard game. We've both been very bullish, pardon the pun, about the Bulldogs. Nothing to change my mind about that. I thought your boy or your former boy, Josh Bruce, was really impressive. He ended up with four goals. Uh, Sam Lloyd, been a great pickup for them. He weighed in with three. And the usual suspects around midfield were great for the doggies. Bontempelli, Dunkley, uh, Lockie Hunter got a heap of the ball. For Port, um, we've said it for a, a while now, Darcy Byrne-Jones, he's a really, really good player for them. Uh, I thought Ryan Burton looked quite good for them. The one I looked at and thought, gee, this guy could looks like he's set for a really good season, Sam Powell Pepper. He's had some setbacks. It seems just as though he'd arrived as a league footballer a couple of times. There's been an indiscretion here or there. And I think Ken Hinckley's been pretty hard on him over the duration. Mm. But it also seems, especially with Ollie Wines, uh, potentially not right till halfway through the season, that he's invested faith and uh, an important role with Sam Powell Pepper. And that is the midfield grunt and plenty of time there. And I think... He looks like he's ready to step up. Do you feel that Hinkley's been harsh on him? Um, I not, reckon he's been a bit of a whipping boy. Yeah, well, not, I, I guess probably out of the desperation for someone to step forward and become, you know, a real leader of, the, yep. of that team. I'll tell you what, though, their production line of talented young kids continues, though, with uh, the boy Georgiades yeah. pl- playing against yes. his father's offside. Incidentally, boys, he got some aerial ability. Uh, well, they'll be hoping, obviously, his uh, star is on the ascent a little bit longer than his old man's was. Of course, famously kicked nine, what, nine on debut. Yeah, and then I think seven or something the following week, and, and the then week after kicked Trevor Barker in the head, and then vanished all without trace. Oh, I actually interviewed John Georgiades yeah. after that debut. Um, but uh, yeah, he's got plenty of talent and. Uh, one of the highlights of that game for me, absolutely beautiful goal around the corner, over the shoulder from a fair way out from Connor Rosie. He is a class act. That was a YL of that game. But, uh, yeah, it's always hard to get a read on Port Adelaide, I find. Uh, and the Bulldogs, they've gone under, but um, I think they're going to be serious players this year. Well, I think Bulldogs would be pleased with, uh, in March 1, Alex Keith playing a commanding role, and then in March 3, uh, the first time they've seen Josh Bruce, it's exactly what they were after, wasn't it? Remember Aaron Norton. It's very hard to, it'll be hard to keep both of them down. Yep, no, I agree. They're certainly a much, much better forward set up now than they had even when they won the Premiership in 2016. We had uh, a WA derby, obviously a lot less attached to this one which Freo got up and won by a point after not looking likely for probably 90% of the game. Pretty dour scrap this game. Uh, the Dockers 8 7 to West Coast 7 They were down by close to four goals and ended up kicking the last, I think, five of the game. Uh, for them, Walters as uh, classy as ever, Nat Fife. Griffin Logue uh, looked really impressive down in defence. Seems to have got even bigger and stronger. I mean, he, was, he wasn't small to begin with, but uh, he seems like he could really hold the fort down there. Brayshaw, good for them. Tucker, Hughes, a uh, little bit of a concern with Stephen Hill. Yeah, Had might, to, might be a price to pay. Yeah, well, gee, hasn't he? He's just been beset by injury issues over the last few years. Uh, West Coast, they're none for two from their Marsh games. Is that a cause for concern? No, not really, on account of it. 
didn't look like and doesn't look like they cared about winning either of them. Uh, yeah, true. They fielded a strong side, though. I think Jack Darling was about the only obvious part of their best 22 that didn't play on the weekend. Yeah, just I'm not sure whether their, their starting 18 was the same as their finishing 18. And mm. a few boys took some early showers. Fremantle, certain teams need to win pre-season because whatever they've got going in terms of self-belief can only be improved by victory. And somebody like Cam McCarthy, who's redefining himself a bit, would have got a lot out of the Marsh series and certainly out of Marsh 3 because I think it propels him into the starting 22 for round one. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm more positive about the Dockers than negative. I think you can see that they're trying to play a more positive attacking sort of game obviously hasn't translated in the scores this time but they're playing a pretty good side uh highest quality for mine easily uh of this preseason thus far came at Wagga Wagga with uh, a grand final rematch of sorts and GWS I hate it when people say this extracting revenge (laughs) for their grand final defeat in a meaningless practice game by 14 points, 17-7, to Richmond, 14-11-95. This was a, a high-standard game, plenty of pressure, uh, plenty of attacking footy, decent scores, and uh, both sides, I reckon, would have come away from this game thinking, yep, we're, we're right to go. Big problem for Leon Cameron. What's that? How does he pick the 22? Oh, I yes. mean, yeah. Isaac Cumming, Hately, Yep, Hately, Tom Tom Green, all deserve to get picked in round one. I don't know whether it's possible. They will have to wait for Callan Ward to come back, and obviously there's the injury to Taranto. But can you fit all three in? Because if you play them pre-season and they've done as well as they have, how could you leave them out? Yeah, gee, um, speaking of Green, the Green with the E on the end of his name, he he was sharp, wasn't he? Five goals to Toby Green. Uh, whoever's playing on him round one must already have a headache and not even know that he's got the job yet. They've got a great forward set up now, I reckon, with him at the feet yeah. of uh, Cameron Himmelberg and Finlayson, who's been a revelation up forward. Uh, by the same token, the other mob isn't... And they like Langdon down there as well. Oh, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned him, actually. He was very impressive. Yep. Um, the other mob is hardly shabby up forward either. I thought Tom Lynch, speaking about sharp, he looked really sharp with four goals. Uh, what about the ease with which Dustin Martin slotted his couple of goals? Just uh, you, you never expect him to miss. Gee, he's a good player. I don't know if he's the greatest player of all time, as Daisy Pierce dubbed him during the week. But yeah, that's uh, a big that's a big call. Bit of recency bias at play there, I think. But uh, but I tell you what, when he when he sets his mind to it, the end result is goal. Either, yeah. either he kicks it or he parts the way for somebody else. But I, I think a key to the way Richmond plays uh, is probably inherent in the list of their best players: Martin, Rioli, Lynch, Prestia, Castagna, and Edwards. Um, they've got so many uh, good small players. They, you know, they're not an overly big side, are they, physically? But so many good small players who both, A, ap- apply plenty of pressure and, B, are dangerous near goals. And that's that's a real uh, trick to the Tigers. You mentioned Sydney Stack's incredible mark. But I've got to say, and it's, you know, it's very easy to sort of throw your hat in with the reigning Premier, isn't it? But Sydney Stack comes into that best 22, surely. Marlon Pickett clearly is in their best 22. They've got stuff to add to what was already a dominant mix in the grand final. And Noah Bolter, who had a 
you know, burst on the scene last year. He's a really good, versatile um, ruck key position player. Collier Dawkins. Coleman Jones. And and any other hyphen that they want yeah. to put in the club. Look, they are – you get to this point where you're a very good team and adding one or two at the right time can really fast-track those players – to be very valuable footballers. You put those same kids into a, a, a floundering Gold Coast and bad habits are learnt and it's very hard. But Hardwick has been brilliant at integrating players into the side who've gone on to become key members of the team. Actually, Richmond did have a third hyphen, hyphenated player, but no longer. Frederick Torb. She's lost the Torb. I don't know what happened to it, but oh. she's now just Sabrina Frederick. The former it, Brisbane. Correct. Now uh, now down at Punt Road. All right, uh, your boys, the Saints. Uh, good win in uh, another game I thought was a pretty good standard at Morwell. Uh, St Kilda 10-8-68, defeating Collingwood 9-3-57. What would you make of that one? Sometimes you play these games in certain venues and maybe a bit heavy underfoot. Rained apparently during the... Um, curtain raiser or the AFLW game, the double header. I didn't catch that, and it just seemed the ball movement was a little bit harder than it should have been for both of these teams. Nevertheless, the pressure was good, quality shun on both sides of the legs. Or I felt I thought shun or Sean Sean okay. would be better. I thought side bottom was really good. Pendlebury, while he was on the field, was best on ground. Bit of a concern with Taylor Adams going off. They're claiming that it's... A hip injury? Yeah, nothing too serious because he's a vital cog, especially with Trelaw unavailable for the early matches with his hamstring concerns. St Kilda were second best for much of the first half, if not all of it, and then just pulverised Collingwood in that third quarter. 20 inside 50s to Mm. two or something, something like that, but found it hard to convert. So in... The disappointment that Collingwood would have felt with their midfield, albeit with a couple of stars not there getting pounded, and it was great for St Kilda to see Hanbury and Jones get on top, and Bradley Hill, very good quarter by Bradley Hill. I think Collingwood would have been pleased at how their backline stood up. Guys like Magden, yep, look like he'll be starting the season in the ones. Jeremy Howe, very good. He's always good, isn't he? Roughhead, now in the leadership group, good. So they stood up, but in the end, St Kilda found a way to goal. Where do you think Dacos and the older Brown are? Um, Yeah, fringes, you know, probably fringes of that 22, last couple of players picked. Dacos is looking more and more confident, is he? I'll tell you what's confusing about that. The fact that he wears number 26. Kevin Browns. Well, shouldn't they have given that to one of the Browns? I well, think it must have been an injury. What's going on? One of the Browns got 35? No. <laughs> okay. Just, that, uh, that would have really stuffed me up. But almost like that travails, even though he seems to have got over it last year, that Jack Silvani had at Carlton and now his brother. It's it's not easy being a big-name father-son at a famous club. I, th- I think it comes with baggage. And we'll see how Tom Hurd's journey at Essendon goes. Yeah, well, that's going to be interesting. Yeah, basically made his name playing soccer rather than footy. So a bit of code hopping there. But, uh, yeah, that was a, um, 
uh, favourite Essendon son, uh, uh, the son of a favourite Essendon son, Just uh, the son of a son. Very quickly from St Kilda's perspective, there was some exciting stuff done by Max King. I hope he kinks, kicks yes. better. I hope he kicks better than he did at Morwell. Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned that, actually. I, I tweeted something about that. His first half was real exciting. Geez, good in the air. Yeah. And he's athletic, too. Yeah, and he covers uh, the ground. He's not very strong. I mean, he's, you know, but he's, what, in his second season. Yeah. But, um, no, I, I thought some really good signs. Do you reckon he'll play round one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. I think he does play round one. Isn't Loney a clever footballer? He's often forgotten when even St Kilda fans talk about best 22s, etc. But he's in that best stadium, let me tell you. He's at the foot. He does business at the foot of the pack. Yeah, the other the other guy that impressed me for St Kilda too, um, and, you know, he's been a, a good player for them already, but Jack Steele. I, I like what yeah, he does. And and Dunstan. I've always been a rap for Dunstan too when others weren't. Now, here's something interesting. Gre- Gresham and Ross didn't play. Gresham obviously comes back into that side, but... Ross does not as obviously come back into that team because... The reigning best and fairest. Correct. Well, we have to have a full midfield. That midfield was pretty full with rotations. Yeah. yeah. And Gresham will be playing through the middle. Well, it's a good problem. See what happens. It's a good problem for Brett Ratton to have. And uh, the final Marsh game before we get the real thing underway, Brisbane running out in the end, very convincing winners over the Blues. 16-15, 116-15, 111 to 10-6-66. Now, I did read one summary of this game which had the alarm bells ringing for the Blues. I think that might have been a bit premature. I thought their first quarter and a half, at least, was uh, reasonably good. Certainly fell away. They've still got some issues with their overall skill level, I think. They really, some of the younger guys on that side really struggle to consistently hit targets. Brisbane... Um, just didn't seem to get out of first gear early on, but when it clicked, boy, they were pretty dominant by the end. Um, Charlie Cameron, five goals for them, very impressive. Uh, Zorko, good. McLuggage, good. Uh, for the Blues, uh, Cripps and Walsh probably leading the way there. Settlefield looked okay. Do you think the, the Blues have cause for concern? Yep. Yeah, I think they do because of the fact that you t- hit the nail on the head. Their ball usage isn't brilliant. Even their star player, Cripps, it's not the best part of his game either. And they just, look, very similar to that state game. They were up by 30 points, lost by 40 points. Mm. But they're no all-stars. No. They they will remain a frustration to their supporters if they can't hit targets up front. Now, the one thing is, unfortunately, they don't have Mackay for the start of the season and Kurnow for a fair chunk of the season, which means that they can't kick balls speculatively into the forward line and expect whoever they've got there to mark it. Mm. The guys that could mark um, sort of high-spec balls aren't playing at the moment. So they need to really lower the eyes and try and hit some targets. Otherwise, the game against Richmond will be a a non-contest. All right. Well, that is the preliminaries to the 2020 AFL season done and dusted. The real thing creeping ever closer. Uh, that's news feed for this week too. Let's uh, just muse about life, Fanny. Life Hacks. Building a better world. Okay, well, uh, if you thought we've ignored a fairly major sporting event in this town, we haven't. We're intending to talk about it right now from two 
different perspectives. I speak, of course, of the Women's T20 World Cup, the final of which was played last night at the MCG. And congratulations to the Australian side. Absolutely dominant performance in the final against India. And we've both come in today determined to make one of our life hacks this match. So you far away first, Viney. I know that Melbourne likes to call themselves the sporting capital of Australia, if not the world. But every now and then, there will be a a measuring stick, a, a watershed event, a, an opportunity to for the outsiders to say, yeah, you know what, they really do love their sport in that town. Now, this T20 Women's World Cup was scheduled the final on International Women's Day and was given due deference with Katy Perry flown in to perform before and after the match, and I'm sure that got people through the gate. But sports-loving Australians didn't know Australia was going to make that final until the last minute of the semi-final against South Africa, and that was a close-run thing. Thank you, Duckworth. Thank you, Lewis, because I don't know whether it was fair. And the fact that 86,000 turned up, a little bit short of the world record for a women's spawning event, but 86,000 people turned up, beautiful conditions as they were, and the bonhomie with the large contingent of Indian supporters, a huge following for Australia at this event was something, not only are we rightfully proud of the crowds we can just on you know, very short notice, pull for a, an event like that, over 80,000. But where in the world would you have supporters getting on so well, no segregation, no, no complaints from the losing supporters, just a real celebration as it was meant to be? And I think Melbourne fosters that. I know we get some ugly scenes occasionally at the footy, but given the numbers of people that we put through the gate, I really believe that we celebrate sport longer, better, and to a person more readily than any other place in the world. I I think it was confirmed on Sunday night. No, I tend to agree with you. Um, I guess the angle I wanted to come from is is the obvious one, and it it is the remarkable rise of women's sport in this country. And um, look, there was a campaign to get a great crowd there, but so what? I mean, the fact that they turned up, 86,174 was the final crowd figure. And tribute first to that team. I mean, the Australian women's cricket team has led the way for however long now. It's It's been, they've just sustained their run at the top for so long. Alyssa Healy, 75, that was a, a great knock uh, in anyone's language. How about the triple six? Yeah, 39 balls, five sixes and seven fours for her. And Beth Mooney, once Healy went out, just uh, took over completely. 78 not out from 54 deliveries from her. And uh, India were done and dusted pretty much then. And certainly by the time they lost a wicket in the first over, only 99. So almost doubled their score in the end. Uh, Megan shut four for 18 and uh, Jonason three for 20 doing the damage there. But I was just thinking, finally, I spent a fair proportion of the weekend watching the AFLW, the standard of which continues to climb. And we're starting to see a really good quality product there. Um, the T20 World Cup final in, in front of close to 90,000 people. Um, the 
female basketballers, uh, netball. Um, well, the Matildas are playing, I think, this evening. Yeah, well, Sam Kerr, you know, one of the bona fide stars of world sport, male or female. I mean, these are heady days for women's sport in this country, and it's far less of a novelty for people now, isn't it? You'll notice there's a lot fewer of those pieces written to this end because we're becoming used to it. And I I just think that is fantastic. And I know there was a bit of a thing during the week. Uh, the Herald Sun uh, came out and talked about they were turning off reader comments on their AFLW stories because it had just become completely unmanageable. Trolled. And, and uh, some of the distasteful ones you've read, they're only the tip of the iceberg, obviously. But um, I... I support them in doing that because I think the bulk of the public has well and truly embraced women's sport and these dinosaurs who refuse to get on board deserve to be left in the past. They, they really don't deserve any airtime and it's just great to see. I just, I love, we both love sport. We love seeing as many people as possible both following it and playing it and, uh, you know, the, the benefits of women being involved to the same level as men in sport, not just as spectators, but as participants. I mean, it's you shouldn't have to explain them to people, but it's going to become apparent. I mean, e.g., people that complain about, uh, you know, funding for women's football comes at the expense of suburban and grassroots men's football. Well, it doesn't, because the more women that end up getting on board football in those areas, the better the resources and funding's going to become. So... Um, great days for Australian women's sport and, uh, you know, a, a really, really memorable occasion. And I've got to say, I'm no Katie Perry fan, but I, I don't dislike her, but it's just not my cup of tea. But to see the Australian cricketers get up and, you know, shaking their booties with Katie Perry, that, that was great. It was very reminiscent of uh, Jack Rewalt jumping up on stage with the Killers after the 2017 grand final so um women's sport high times for women's sport and uh, great to see i reckon just to that end i remember about 30 years ago i was playing at east brighton at hurlingham park and there was an adjacent ground with women's cricket on it and i was told that that was the second grade second highest grade of women's cricket in melbourne now nobody was watching and that seemed to be their lot in life I know it's 30 years is a long time, but in front of 86,000 people, even Alyssa Healy said she could not imagine in her time. She thought maybe 20 years from now that could happen. But it is testimony to the quality of this team and administrations around the world, not just Australia, but it used to be Australia, New Zealand with a bit of England, but now it's truly international because, let's face it, halfway through the second game against Sri Lanka, Australia's campaign looked all, all but shot. Mm, mm. The Sri Lankans were set to beat them, had them three for ten, and that would have been just about it. So, yep. you know, it's come a long way, and, you know, it, it means one thing. It means our daughters, because I know my daughters have done this, they look at all sports and say, well, if I'm good enough, I'll, I'll have the same opportunities and the same glory that the boys have. And, Little girls don't think themselves any inferior to little boys. I don't know where we drew the line in the sand in the past, but that line's been well and truly smudged out. Yep, no, no, well said. All right, your second life hack. This is not as positive. I had occasion over the last three days twice to visit a street in Melbourne that used to be one of my favourites for going out to eat and to shop, and it is 
in a terrible state of decline. Victoria Street, Richmond, uh, always had a reputation for being seedy, but there seemed to be, for many years, the sort of ability for um, some pretty you know, nefarious deeds to be done alongside a very vibrant restaurant and shopping strip, shopping for food. It's it's closed. They're, most of the restaurants are closed down there. What, all of Vietnamese restaurants? Yeah, a good 50% of them are really? closed down. Hmm. Virtually all of the food um, produce stores, butchers, fishmongers, gone. They're all boarded up, graffiti everywhere. It is a sad state of affairs. Unfortunately, the lawlessness and the criminal activity and drug dealing has taken over and people have just moved away from there and it's not, not a place that you're comfortable taking family or friends and I used to be more than comfortable even with the dark side. Well, the Herald Sun would no doubt seize on your comments because they've been running a, a fairly concerted campaign on the uh, injecting room I'm not talking about the injecting room. But, well, I mean, is that a factor, though? I don't think so. You know, they, these are commercial decisions based on, uh, I, I think, a few years of decline. But interesting you should mention a newspaper l- latching onto that. That'll be part of my third take. Oh, okay. All right. On to, on to you, sir. I'll be interested to hear. Well, I'm uh, actually continuing a media theme here. The um, Quill Awards for excellent Excellence in Journalism uh, in Victoria were held last Friday night. Named after Peter Quill from Footscray. And uh, not as such. Um, but uh, nice bloke, Peter Quill. But uh, I did want to give a shout-out, and congratulations to all winners, obviously, all, all very deserved. But um, it was a, a big, big night for one of my former age colleagues and a guy we've talked about a bit on this show, Conrad Marshall, of course, author of those great couple of books about Richmond's premiership seasons. But Conrad um, is a fantastic journo and a fantastic writer, uh, who uh, does most of his stuff, or does all of his stuff, basically, for Good Weekend. Uh, still a, a high-quality production, Good Weekend, uh, available in The Age every weekend. Conrad won the Best Sports feature, uh, which was for a fantastic piece he wrote about the concussion issue, which appeared uh, about this time a year ago. And if you haven't seen it, it is available online. Easily the most nuanced piece I've read about the issue, which didn't just do the obvious and go to some of the players whose lives have been turned upside down, e.g. John Barnes, John Platten, Sean Smith. Um, But he spent a fair bit of time talking to people on the other side of this argument, and and it is an issue which is still dividing a lot of, um, you know, very qualified medical people who differ about the long-term impacts of concussion and obviously the uh, news about polypharma recently has thrown another element into this story but it was a a really well-written piece as well I thought that tackled a subject which could be pretty dry in a a very uh, gripping engaging sort of way and and, uh, spoke to a huge range of people. And isn't that the key for a feature article? It is. To grip whether you agree with it or not but to be 
taken by it that you have to read the next paragraph. Yeah, and I, I've, I've always felt that with Conrad's stuff. Some of the other um, features he submitted that one were uh, there was a piece on uh, Rod Laver, a uh, great piece about Ron Laver, uh, a really good profile piece on uh, Elise Perry, and uh, a, a fantastic piece coming. I guess, out of his interviews with Marlon Pickett, about Marlon Pickett after he'd made that uh, famous grand final debut. Uh, Conrad doesn't just write about sport. He writes across all topics. And uh, he's, he's a wonderful um, a wonderful writer about any topic, really. But I, I, just, I was really heartened to see someone who's upholding journalistic values, which I hold dear, and one of them is quality research and quality writing. It's sort of like a victory for them. And he topped that off. Not only did he win Best Sports Feature, but he then won the Harry Gordon Sports Journalist of the Year Award. And for a guy who isn't working full-time as a sports journalist, sport is just one area he covers, um, I thought that was it was unusual and it was a, a fantastic um, decision and thoroughly deserved. Now I've already Conrad knows I'm a fan. I've already congratulated him, but uh, I cannot recommend his work highly enough. And I was rapt to see him uh, win that. And in fact, just to finish off, the gold quill, like the you know the Brownlow Medal of the night, was won by AFL photographer Michael Wilson for that iconic pick of Taylor Harris. Um, which really sparked a, a worldwide discussion about women in sport and is a, a beautiful picture in its own right. So congratulations to Michael Wilson as well. But uh, well done, Conrad. Thoroughly deserved. Three Conrads I know. Conrad Hilton, Conrad Marshall and Conrad Hunt, the cricketer. Uh, Conrad Black, the Canadian who for a, a while owned uh, the, the age. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, right. that didn't go well. I'm sure there are others. All right, uh, your final life hack. And so my final life hack is to do with the very serious coronavirus or COVID-19, and it is very serious. The latest news out of Italy is um, jaw-dropping that, you know, one-third of the country is in lockdown virtually. But the opportunism of media... They must be struggling. Newspapers and particularly current affair programs with bad reputations to jump on this from every angle because fear sells only increases the problems, exacerbates issues like panic buying and some of the scenes that we've seen that are so ugly in supermarkets, a couple here or there, but they are blown out of proportion, making people feel the need to, yes, that's terrible, but I've got to get my toilet paper. I mean, the... Last night on 60 Minutes, they devoted, I think, the entire program to COVID-19, but in such a sensational way. I was coming in and out of it because I was in another room watching football, but my family was being panic-stricken by um, 60 Minutes, including one segment on trading in animals, especially the pangolin, where the final line was, Mother Nature is wreaking her just revenge on mankind. My kids panicked, you know, I don't think they slept last night. But this is just the latest in whatever fear sweeps this country. Some of it, of course, very much made up by newspapers like um, African gangs, etc., proven to be scurrilous. And it only makes 
the problem that they supposedly are responsibly reporting worse. Mm. There's no response. There, I think responsible reporting went out with decimal currency. Well, I, I think I might have even said this last week that, you know, 20 years ago, one, almost the biggest difference in the media now, 20 years ago, the media felt a responsibility to lead on issues and to, and campaigning journalism was about stuff of, of real value. And the one I always refer to, and, and it's now 50 years ago, is the Sun News pictorial declare war on 1034 on the road toll. Yep. Um, and those things, not only do those things not happen now, but the campaigns they do lead are at the other end of the spectrum, as you say. They appeal to people's fear and bigotry. And I'll, I'll say one thing: that it's they cheap do, and nasty. They do know that there is a line that can't be crossed because they don't do seem. They? To, yeah, they do, because they don't seem to go in for this sensationalism and and fear mongering with bushfires, with the fires. I think that is treated far more respectfully, and there is more information and and more warnings and more general service reporting than certainly with this outbreak of COVID-19. I think that's something that Australians just would not would not allow, would be, you know, the sensationalism of some of the terrible stories that come out of bushfires. I think there is respect shown there. From that point of view, there is. I would argue that uh, the, the reporting on the bushfires in a lot of media outlets uh, just fueled a further agenda, which was climate change denialism, and it became yeah, they yeah. became desperate to argue that you know the the plague of bushfires. Uh, they gave a voice to people that claimed that absolutely. Yeah, and and there are quite erroneous. Uh, figures reported about you know the amount of the fires that were caused by arson, etc., yeah. uh, etc. Et um, all right, my we should have called this segment Media Watch because my last one is another media issue, but I couldn't let this go unremarked upon. Um, we seem to have said this a lot lately. Sad day for the media. Well, a particularly sad day for the media early last week when came the announcement of the impending oh, closure yes. of Australian Associated Press. Now, uh, AAP, if you don't know what AAP is, well, I can tell you, you're going to miss it anyway, even if you don't know what it is. Uh, A wire service, of course, uh, I think 85 years it's been going, basically jointly owned and funded by the two major media organisations in this country, News Corp and Nine, each of which own, I think, 47.5%, the remaining five or so percent by a variety of smaller media organisations. But basically the big players have uh, pulled their funding and AAP will cease to exist at the end of the financial year. What does that mean? Well, it basically means increasingly in, in an age where the major media outlets are trimming back staff and have fewer resources, they've become even more reliant on AAP to provide an enormous amount of the stuff that you read and and hear and see in the news. That is now not going to be available. And, uh, you know, those of us already wringing our hands about the sort of news coverage we get now, you wait until this happens. There is going to be so much stuff that goes on, not only in this state but in the country and around the world, that you're just not going to read about anymore. The The sort of things they do that the major players rely on, court cases particularly, um, 
sports events and press conferences. There's going to be a heap of that stuff no longer covered in the media because there simply won't be anyone there covering it. The ridiculous thing about this is I I read a piece saying that uh, it was going to save each of those major companies $15 million. Well, how much of that are they going to spend hiring reporters so that at least some of the shortfall of this coverage can be replaced and a lot of those will probably be people who have been unemployed with the closure of AAP so it's sort of cutting off your nose to spite your face and surely they are savings that could have been made elsewhere and I can think of one very obvious area that is the exorbitant amounts paid to certain media executives in those companies making stupid decisions like this. It is a real tragedy for Australian journalism and it's not just the insiders who will suffer, it is all you people out there who consume news. Uh, it's uh, Hold on to your hats because you're going to notice this change. Whether you noticed AAP in the past or not, I can tell you, you will certainly notice their absence. Uh, tragic tragic event for the Australian media landscape in my view I didn't exactly know what AAP was but I certainly saw them at the end of many articles I've read over the years. Correct and uh, an increasing amount as those years have gone by Alright that is Life Hacks for this week Uh, I think finally it's time we went back in time and checked out the great music, movies and TV of yesteryear Vinyl and Video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Okay, let's go. Well, last week we went way, way, way back, Finey, to the year of our birth. In fact, 1965. I thought it was time... And I have to jump in and say the year of our birth was celebrated by one of us during the week. Happy birthday, Ray. Ah, thank you. Yes, and uh, I'm 55 for anyone... Who cares? No, I can't believe I'm 55. But do, you, do you remember the word that becomes before 55 for an Australian? Oh, old, old with an apostrophe. I've been, I've been told that, but I'm, I'm about to turn old 55. Well, I was even uh, moved to change my profile picture on uh, Facebook and my LinkedIn profiles uh, as a result. Mm. And, um, that sounds Yeah, I, I, am looking, I am looking older than the one it replaced, definitely. Anyway, I thought we need to make things a bit more contemporary as a result, so I've delved back into my favourite decade, Finey, and that being the 1990s, and this week we're going to have a look at 1996. What do you immediately think of in any respect when I say 1996? The bicentennial of AFL AFL football, which fell in the wrong year. Yes. Well, their their argument was it was the 100th season. Ross Oakley's uh, of course, that meant the uh, we had the Lightning Premiership uh, out at Waverley. We had a Gold Premiership Cup. That's North, right, North's we did. Cup was gold. Yeah, I always thought it was particularly special. What else happened in '96 that caught your eye? The Olympics uh, in Atlanta. Yeah, uh, yeah, 1996 yes. Atlanta Olympics. What else happened in '96? Well, I'll tell you what else happened. Plenty happened in the entertainment world, particularly in these three spheres that we like to talk about. So let's start with music, Fonny, and uh, I'm going to get pretty excited right here and now. First of all, uh, a couple of honourable mentions. Uh, 1996, good year for albums. Of course, uh, probably on the tail end of the, the grunge movement by this stage, but still some big players released some big albums to that effect. 
Uh, not all of those grunge, but uh, Odelay by Beck was a big album that year. Uh, a great album by um, a band I've been playing a fair bit of lately, actually. R.E.M. came out with New Adventures in Hi-Fi, which I think is a particularly good album. Uh, the mighty uh, prog rockers, I guess, of a sort, Tool, released Enema, easily their best album. And uh, they were out here just uh, last week, I think, or a couple of weeks ago. Pearl Jam weighed in with No Code. Another great grunge band, never got the kudos they deserved in my book, Screaming Trees, released Dust, and the mighty Soundgarden finally released Down on the Upside, which uh, proved actually didn't prove to be their last studio album. In that incarnation of Soundgarden, it proved to be their last album. However, I could not go past this album. It's one of my favourites. Uh, it's by one of my fav- very favourite bands. Who do you think that might be? Not Rage Against the Mix. The Prodigy? It is Rage Against the Machine, Finey. And their second album, is that, is Evil that, Empire. Is that the big one, is it? Oh, they're all big. They're all big. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have trouble choosing one uh, from the others. Uh, probably self-titled. I'd, I'd, if push came to shove, I'd go with that. But this is a great album featuring one of the great album covers, by the way, a, a very sort of Hitler Youth-esque looking young boy with a a uniform with a big E on it on the cover, looking very grim and determined. And uh, this is a, you know, it took them four years to come up with a follow-up, but I reckon it is a mighty record, which in a way has a bit more depth to it than the self-titled, not as immediately catchy, but in some way the tracks sort of stay with you longer. It's an angry record, as you'd expect. Uh, what what tracks am I talking about here? Well, the the big name tracks on this album, no doubt, number one and an absolute favourite. Used to be my theme song on uh, SEN, Bulls on Parade. Love that track. Snake Charmer, one of their very best songs, I think often underrated. Uh, Down Rodeo, um, fantastic lyrics to that track about... Uh, what, what does he say? I'm ro- rolling down Rodeo, as in Rodeo Drive. I'm rolling down Rodeo with a shotgun. These people ain't seen a black man since their grandparents bought one. <laughs> um, uh, finishes with Year of the Boomerang, another favourite track of mine. Uh, people of the Sun, Vietnam, Revolver, uh, Without a Face, Wind Blow, Roll Right. Uh, it's just a cracking album. Yes, look, I love this band. I could listen to anything they do, and I, I still do frequently. But um, Evil Empire was a mighty follow-up. Uh, it did very well commercially, too. It always makes me laugh when people say, oh, they weren't that big. This album got to number two on the Australian album charts, and uh, number one in the US did very, very well commercially. Uh, it's angry. It's uh, politically charged. The lyrics, as always, are absolutely compelling. And the music is uh, just absolutely... I can't even think of the right word to describe. I'm running short of words, but you put this on and you will just be picked up and shaken around a bit and then put down and ready to hear it all over again. Evil Empire by Rage Against the Machine, my album of 1996. My music of 1996, look... Oh, you've done the cop-out again, have you? Not an album? Well, I take it off an album, so I'll give you the album. Okay. But I don't really know the album very well. All right. In as much that I really like this particular song, and it alerted me to a an artist, an act, a performance that 
at the time was controversial. I didn't find it controversial at all. I just found the music. I sort of heard the controversy before I heard the music. And then when I heard the music, I really liked the music. And I'm speaking of Marilyn Manson. Ah, yes. And the album was Antichrist Superstar. Chock full of 19 or 16, sorry, 16 tracks, a lot of tracks. But The Beautiful People was the standout and the one that got commercially played and the one that I sort of got fed into Marilyn Manson by. And Marilyn Manson is um, hard, hardcore metal, but it's not heavy metal as in heavy metal as people might associate heavy metal with. It's more rhythmical and musical than that to me. Anyhow. What was the source of the controversy? Uh, Devil worship oh, yeah. um, at a time when America was still believing that there were, you know, devil worship was behind some criminal acts and there was some very controversial court cases going on. Well, he he was also said to be a uh, um, a uh, factor in the Columbine shooting, yeah, wasn't correct, he? correct, correct. And uh, remember Tipper Gore, Al Gore's wife, led the campaign about uh, classifying records. Yeah, yeah and, that's right. And there was, at that stage, there was still the running of the case in West Memphis, the West Memphis Three, and that centred around devil worship and rock and Marilyn Manson mentioned there. So there was great... Con- also, it was claimed that he was one of the characters from, you know, that boy Pfeiffer from... Um, oh, what's the program? The Wonder Years. Oh, yeah. People claimed that the best friend of Fred Savage... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. ...was, was a, Marilyn a childhood Marilyn Manson. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, yeah, right. <laughs> Not true. I like... I. I don't know the album, but I know it came from that album. But I do like The Beautiful People a lot. I think it's a great track. Powerful, strong opening. And I like Marilyn Manson. There's a, there's, there's a Mia Culpa. Oh, no. I, I, yeah, look, to be honest, he's sort of passed me by a bit. I, have, I haven't sort of paid much attention to him. I know he. we talked uh, about... The Columbine shooting in Mike Moore's doco bowling for Columbine, he is interviewed yep. in that, and um, I think it's a, a rightly a bit of a sore point with him. Now, interesting choice, I like it. Let's talk about movies of 1996 and uh, a few that uh, people might think of and I thought of and uh, went for something else, but uh, among the big releases of that year, uh, in fact, there's one there I thought you might have. Um, Chosen uh, Independence Day. That isn't it. Uh, the one I thought you might have chosen was Train Spotting, which was. I like. Uh, I like Train Spotting. Well, I've got Confession Time. I haven't seen it. Robert Carlyle. Uh, gets very good rap, so I must see that. Yes, I know people now are shaking their heads. How come you haven't seen Train Spotting? It's well, pretty I grim. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I know. I know. Sort of what it's about. Jerry Maguire came out in 1996. Uh, that sort of divides people. I, I didn't mind it. The, show, show me that movie without Tom Cruise. I'd probably like it more. Yeah, The English Patient, uh, Romeo and Juliet. That's of one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Romeo English. and Juliet. No, the oh, English The English Patient. Patient. It's pretty slow. You have to it? be. I, I wished. I, I wished that The English Patient died a lot earlier in the movie than the movie went on for, and on and on. And yeah, on. I think I've heard a few people say that. Uh, Sleepers. Um, 
that's about the computer hackers, isn't it? And uh, it was a year for. Um, have you seen Happy Gilmore? Is, is Sleepers about that? Or am I thinking of something else? Is Sleepers not the. Oh, isn't it the boys that got sent up to a reformatory school because they pushed a trolley oh, down? Oh, is that it? Okay, yeah, no, that wasn't bad. Happy Gilmore, you seen that? Yeah, not, not. I don't like. I'll, He's I a think, golfer, right? Yeah, I think I, I think I grew out of those sort of comedies with Caddyshack, and leave, leave, leave me with Caddyshack. That'll do me. Well, there was another golf movie that year, Tin Cup. That sort of branded, um, what's his name, Kevin Costner as a a dud. Yeah, as a bit of a, as a bit of a um, secondary to a bad sporting movie. If Kevin Costner, you know, if Kevin Costner's in a movie. Give it a wide berth. He had too many black marks. He was in one great sports movie. Field of Dreams. Uh, Oh, yeah. I I just got that mixed up. Yeah, that's what I meant, Field of Dreams. I was thinking of uh, Tim Robbins in Bull Durham, which is a a great movie. I have gone with... I think Waterworld actually sunk Kevin Costner. Yeah, I haven't seen that either. Um, This might be about the time I started, me and the cinema went our separate ways. I did see one film in 1996 that I, I really did like, and it is a genre I particularly like. Look, I, I've never been one for the big action movies and the the sci-fi, and that's why you know these sort of superhero movies we see every second week now leave me a bit cold. I like, uh, for want of a better phrase, social realism, uh, and I, I I like a lot of English movies. It's funny, I'm the reverse with music, but... Uh, I thought a great movie in 1996 directed by Mike Lee was called Secrets and Lies. Um, I think it did pretty well at the box office. Um, uh, people, a uh, few nominations in Golden Globes, etc. Uh, essentially, it is a, a slice of life movie. Um, it's about a black woman whose character name is Hortense Cumberbatch who has been adopted at birth and sets out to trace her history, um, tracks down her birth mother, played brilliantly by Brenda Blethen, a great actress. Uh, Her birth mother is a working-class white woman called Cynthia Rose Purley, and it's fair to say her family and her background is a little troubled. Uh, Hortense is a very middle-class a successful lawyer, I think she is. Anyway, um, she finally persuades Cynthia Purley to meet her and uh, they end up becoming pretty good mates. And uh, this, of course, uh, creates its own set of problems with Cynthia's existing family. She has a, she's a single mother. She has a daughter who's about to turn 21, Roxanne. She has a younger brother, Morris, uh, very well played by Timothy Spall, um, plays her younger brother, and he's a photographer. And uh, Timothy's, um, sorry, Morris's uh, wife, uh, Monica, and uh, Cynthia has a very uh, sort of troublesome relationship with Monica. So there's a lot of family politics here, and um, then Cynthia invites uh, Hortense along to her other daughter Roxanne's 21st birthday at which she tries to pass her off as a work colleague and that lasts about five minutes because she blabs out that she's really her daughter um, and uh, not hilarity ensues <laughs> and uh, 
eventually they sort things out. And uh, look, there's no great sort of life-changing events. Well, no, it is a life-changing event. Um, but I just, I love this movie's tone. You know, I love the way it explores family issues and relationships in a very sensitive and, and realistic manner. It, it's real life. That's what you feel when you watch it. And um, I, I like those sorts of movies. And I thought this was a particularly good one. Uh, I did look up how it was critically received. And it was uh, not just critically received, publicly received. Rotten Tomatoes, which is often a very good guide gives it a 95% rating, which is pretty high. Very strong. And uh, the other one I use, Metacritic, I think uh, gave it a very positive review as well. Um, yeah, look, it's 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 about uh, a, a pretty typical sort of family and a major event in that family's life, how it's handled. Uh, it's handled tenderly and uh, with some depth. It'll make you laugh, it'll make you cry, Fanny, but uh, a very good movie, Secrets and Lies. And I'm glad you can now put a face to Timothy Spall, because remember when I did The Damn United, I told you Timothy Spall oh, played... Oh, it didn't ring a bell. Peter Taylor, the... Oh, he plays Peter Taylor. Yeah. Gee, they aged him well for that. Oh, yeah, and, and he's also most famously recently played Winston Churchill. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, no, very he's good. he's very, very good. Have actor. you seen Secrets and Lies? No, I have not. Great movie, check it out. All right, what are you going with? One of my favourite movies of all time. I don't know where it ranks because I don't know actually where it ranks in my favourite Coen Brothers movies of all time, uh-huh. but I certainly have it in the top three. It is. It was erroneously claimed to be based on a real-life incident. It wasn't. And it is? Fargo, set in the most unlikely of places for an American movie, really. The small-type cities of uh, Fargo itself... Bismarck, North Dakota, um, it's it's all set in incredibly cold climes. One of the stars of the movie is the weather. Can I just stop you there? I, I'm, not, I, I'm almost certain I've seen this. Does this start with there's a murder of a – it's about a police uh, police officer and there's no, a murder? That There is a police officer murdered at the beginning, but that's not what it's about. So, okay, now that's what I, all I remember. So, so this movie is a – uh, Jerry Lundegaard is married to the daughter of a wealthy man, but he runs a car dealership and he's going bankrupt and he needs money to fund this idea for a car park. And basically he's short of funds, but his family has money. So he aims ham-fistedly to stage the kidnap of his wife, at which point he's supposed to get the money to hand over and get the wife back. Everything goes wrong thereafter. And there are a number of murders committed. I won't tell you who gets murdered in it for a spoiler alert, but there's death after death after death. And all of this is investigated by the plucky, determined and irrepressible um, Margie. And Margie Gunderson is heavily pregnant, eight months pregnant. And she leads the life of a pregnant woman, which is a lot of eating has to keep her husband happy, has to meet with an old school friend in a strange scene, and all the while investigate these series of vicious murders, which she does in her very quirky uh, way. They might, The two stars of the movie are Frances McDormand. Oh, yes, she's very good. Margie, yeah. and Jerry Lundegaard is played by, oh, it'll come to me in a moment, uh, William H. Macy. 
both great actors. Oh, yeah, he's in uh, Boogie Nights, isn't he? Yeah. But that's right. But really, many and, and also Steve Buscemi plays one of the crims in it. Fantastic character, all uh, yapping, yapping, yapping. But the real stars, of some of the real stars of these movies are these cameos by real people from that part of America. And they've got a very quirky accent. Oh, yeah, 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 oh, yeah. And uh, there's a lot of eyewitness statements. Very, it's it's a dark comedy because part of it is very very funny. Well, isn't doesn't that go with the territory for Coen Brothers? It very much does. Um, it's incredibly set in the snow and the ice and the sleet. It's beautiful. It's haunting. It's um, best summed up at the end when one of the criminals, after the series of murders, is taken in by Margie. And as they're driving along, and it's white everywhere, snow, everything is snow-covered, but it is sunny. And she goes, hmm, all of those killings, all of those people just for a bit of money. And look, it's such a beautiful day. (laughs) And that's her take on life. Amazing movie. Now spawned a very popular TV series. Yes. But Fargo, I think... A lot of people that weren't Coen Brothers fans became them, became fans thereafter. Fargo, a great movie. So that's in your top three Coen Brothers. What are the other two? Oh, look, it's hard. It varies. I, I love The Big Lebowski. Yeah. I love Miller's Crossing. I love No Country for Old Men. I, yeah, I've seen all that. Um, yeah, what's really strange? I don't really remember those ones well. Well, No Country for Old Men was a pretty um, chilling sort of movie with... Javier Bardem. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I remember. Antoine and he's, he's married to an absolute... Who's he married to? Penelope Cruz. Oh, lucky man. Um, I'm going to say something controversial here. Yep. I think the big Lebowski's a tad overrated. Oh, it's great. Yeah, I know people love it, it, it with a passion. Yeah, it, it's... it's it's quir- Look, I also love Oh Brother Where Art Thou. I mean, I'm a big fan of the Coen brothers. So some of their lesser-liked movies I like as well. But they I mean... What's the one with John Goodman where it ends up with the, the hotel... Bart, Barton Fink. Yeah. I that's, thought that was pretty weird. Hu- yeah, it's very weird. Um, there's Hudsucker Pro... Look, there's 20 of them. Yeah. I mean, I love their take on True Grit, which I watch regularly for some reason because I just... They yeah. do a remake of True Grit. Oh, yeah. It's oh, okay. a brilliant remake. So, I'm a big fan of their style of movie making, which is very true to dialogue and very true to recreating the dialogue of the time and the place. And Fargo is a great example of that. Okay, good call. I'm sort of inspired to see it again now. Please uh, do. Please it do. certainly has been a long time. All right, TV. Now, um, yeah, I created a rod for my own back here because I found pretty slim pickings for TV. Really slim pickings, but I found something great. Yeah, and I'm desperately trying to remember what it was so I don't give it away now. But I'll, I'll – uh, okay, got it. Yeah, no, you have got a good one. And I nearly went with that myself. So, um, in terms of TV, 1996 produced Third Rock from the Sun, which uh, had a bit of a cult following, didn't it? About uh, John Lithgow. Yeah, aliens uh, living in the US. Um, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Don't know why I even wrote that down. Spin City, which um, had good raps for a while. Was that Michael J. Fox's sort of last? Yeah, and he was, I think he was replaced by Charlie Sheen, was he? Yeah, maybe. Was that that show? Maybe. Anyway, uh, it was about, yeah, it was sort of probably the start of that genre, which is now producing things like The Thick of It and Veep, you know, sort of. Uh, advisors to politicians yep. 
And uh, the, the one I thought you would go with, actually, Judge Judy, which um, oh, no. became uh, pretty quickly a bit of a cult thing. Now, what I've chosen, now, I'll, uh, hands up here, it's not a show I even watched regularly. Every It was one of those shows where, you know, if it was on and I started watching it, I'd watch it happily and get a few laughs out of it. So I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was groundbreaking or, or uh, you know, uh, ahead of the curve or even the best in its field, but I'm talking about Everybody Loves Raymond. Uh, where do you stand on that show? Yeah, I could watch an episode or two of it, and then it tends to, for me, it tends to rotate on the same axis a yeah. bit much. Well, a bit like um, Big Bang Theory or... Yeah, I'm not a fan of Big Bang Theory, yeah. but this one I think is a little bit better because there's a bit of truth in it for me with the mother and the... <laughs> <laughs> um, that being said, I would, I'd, I'd rate it as a bit of a tour de force for the two main actors. Oh, I guess there's more. That well, that's, that's why, why I think it's good. So yeah, you can well, explain. The, yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, for me, the star of the show isn't the star of the show. Um, uh, of course, uh, Ray Romano plays uh, Ray Barone. Uh, he is a US sports writer who works for. Newsday. Did um, some of does some of that resonate with you that he's a sports? Uh, well, you never really hear about that, do you? It's a little a, bit. He's, he's bits and bobs, bits and yeah, bobs. Yeah, it, it resonates when his wife sort of claims it's not really a job. Yeah, because he enjoys doing it. Well, and and that he's too caught up in his work. Yeah, and yeah. Watch, and you know he says he's watching sport and that's work, and she yeah. just completely dismisses that. Yes, no, I can relate to that. Uh, his wife, of course, played... Uh, Deborah is his wife, played by Patricia Heaton. Yeah, she's good. Uh, she is good. I don't know about her politics, but that's another, uh, another uh, discussion. His uh, brother, who is sort of jealous older brother, bigger brother, Robert uh, Barone, who lives with his mum and dad, played by Brad Garrett. Uh, and his parents, Marie Barone, played by Doris Roberts, his mother, and Frank Barone, played by Peter Boyle. And that's what I was going to say. For my memory of this show is that uh, they regularly stole the show, his parents, particularly Marie. I think uh, Doris Roberts is great in this show. And uh, Peter Boyle, too, playing Frank, uh, regularly get the laughs. It's pretty sort of routine sitcom fodder, isn't it, family family relationships and um, uh, Robert, of course, is uh, jealous of Ray, who's very much the favourite son. Um, there's uh, the politics between Marie, Ray's mother, and his wife, Deborah. Well, she could never do the right, never do as well by her husband as the mother can. So. Yeah, and they live across the street, of course, which doesn't make things easier, and Deborah is constantly complaining about not having her own space. There's three kids who, unusually, perhaps for an American sitcom, the kids barely factor into and, it. And I think that's good. Yeah, 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 it's not really about them. But, uh, yeah, look, it's it's watchable. It's, it's one of those shows, if it's on, I'll watch it. I won't necessarily go out of my way to watch it, but... Uh, it was pretty successful over a fair period of time. So everybody loves Raymond is my choice. And your choice is? And just on Peter Boyle, you know, yep. he previously had a lot of oh, strong a lot acting of things. roles. Yeah, he but I can't... Taxi Driver. Oh, is he? Yeah, okay. One of the... Um, He's been in other series too, hasn't he? He also played one of the great comedic roles of all time. What's that? In Young Frankenstein, he played Frankenstein's monster. Okay, Jeez, that, you've seen a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah, but that famous scene, you know, where they 
he and Gene Wilder sing Putting on the Ritz. Him as Frankenstein's I, monster. I haven't seen it. Yeah, okay. I'll show you that He does scene. look a bit like a... I'm looking at thinking of Peter Boyle and imagining you wouldn't have needed a lot of makeup to turn him into He, he started life. He, he went to school to be, to be a priest. He was going to be a priest, but he... Acting took his fancy and they just weren't compatible and he became an actor. Okay, my, and don't, I, I know what you're going to ask me and unfortunately I can't really help you and I'm not going to lie. A constant in my life has been the ability every now and then to be put onto an episode of or to just luck onto an episode or a double episode of Australian Story. Oh, yes, on the ABC. Yeah, I think So you think my question's going to be which my, ones in particular? Yeah, correct. And there, <laughs> there, there have been some. There, there, I know that there was one of a... Well, there's one about Marlon Pickett last week. Yeah, that's just come through, hasn't it? Yeah. The Marlon Pickett one. I have not seen it. There's been a couple of stories about... Um, there's certainly one about the woman who started the Holocaust Centre in Melbourne that was very moving that I did see because I knew some of the people involved in that through my parents. I had also seen a couple which showed glaring injustices in the criminal system, one dealing with Western Australian, the Indigenous community in Western Australia, one particular case, and another of a, a man charged with a murder at a railway station. Now, I can't tell you exactly what these stories were. All I know is that any time I've ever watched Australian Story, I've actually been quite captivated by it, whether Mm. they're small stories and ones about, I know that there was one about a manufacturing business in Melbourne that had survived 70 or uh, 75 years uh, while other giants fell around them. This eye to detail kept this small family concern going. And I've just always found it well-produced, non um Certainly, certainly non um, attention grabbing, non yeah. non sensational. Correct. Yeah, um, a story well told, with the absolute, and I think this has been the key to its success because it's been going for well twenty five years now. Yeah, the key to its success, the absolute confidence and full willingness and participation of the subjects there within. Yeah, no, here, here. And and I think we've come to appreciate it more too at, at a time, and this gets back to what I was saying about quality journalism, that we see less and less of it, sadly, because there are fewer resources and less time to uh, that people have to produce this sort of stuff, and that's why we appreciate it more and when you it takes time to do things well you know it's no no great surprise and um they i'm with you 100% they do great work and in a short time frame too and, and they do sort of come back to me i, I know they did a, a two part or i think on the family that was australia's largest fight the family responsible for making the biggest firework displays in australia and that family splintered into two and became the opposition to each other. And that whole story was... There were fireworks. There were. That that whole story, when retold by family members, was very moving and emotional for them, but but they told it. Yeah. Yeah, I think a, 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 a on a... And you often paint a commercially um, avaricious and it's sometimes short-sighted Australian media, especially in current affairs, this is a bit of a beacon of quality and long-sightedness. Yep, no, very good call, very good call. I, I love documentaries too. I think it's a great, uh, yeah. 
you know, uh, in fact, I, I think as I've got older, I, I almost like documentary, the documentary format more than film. Um, you know, I, I just love good storytelling. And do, do you like documentaries with the voiceover telling the story or... Oh, I, I think they – well, it depends what the subject matter is, but uh, there are various devices that can be used. And, um, you know, sometimes you need a narrator, other times you don't. I mean, what, one – I think this combines it well with a bit of navigation by narration, yeah. the story told mainly by the people involved. Yeah. I, I think there was – one of the most effective documentaries I've seen didn't have narration – or the story being told by the participants. That was the Adam Goods one that was at the final quarter, which is basically just a compilation of news clips, yep. but told a very, very powerful and, and sad story. No, really good call that. That is vinyl and video for this week, 1996. Now, incredibly, 24 years ago. It doesn't feel like that long. All right, Finey, let's rant. On Footyology, The Rant Off. All right, Finey. Well, uh, a heap of subject matter this week. I wasn't sure whether to get angry or, or to be uh, whimsical or whatever. In the end, I just went with whatever I thought had been dominating my consciousness. And uh, unfortunately, it's something which you wouldn't think would be, but it is. And it's sad, and I'm going to tell you why. And I don't know what that any of that means, but you're going to hear it right now. Count me in. Okay. You're on a run of very strong rants. So I hope this lives up to the billing, because in recent weeks you've been brilliant. Three, two, one. I'm pissed off with Australia, Finey. <laughs> Not for the first occasion of late, I might add. But this time, it's bloody embarrassing as well as annoying. I'm talking, of course, about the great toilet paper crisis of 2020. A farce now on display to the rest of the world, courtesy of a series of viral videos. They've shown the rest of the planet the true horror of Australia's first ever civil war. The cause not independence, nor slavery, but yes, bog rolls. The battleground, not Gettysburg, nor the fields of Flanders, but your local Woolies. It's hard to wrap your head around this level of idiocy, but it's beginning to make a few things clear, like the continued presence of the likes of Pauline Hanson and Mark Latham in our parliament, and the sort of TV ratings Married at First Sight gets every week. And of all the sorts of life necessities to lose your chops about, toilet paper? Really? How did this even happen, Finey? One of those insane Facebook group chats where people bask in each other's conspiracy theories? And why did even supposedly normal, rational people suddenly lose all sense of reason as a result? If it's the fear of the coronavirus, shouldn't tissues, painkillers, nasal sprays and cough syrups have been the priority? I mean, they would at least have addressed some of the symptoms. I've at least read enough about this particular virus to know it doesn't lead to sudden, unstoppable purging of waste from your rectum. Is it about the fear of being potentially quarantined in one's house? That would at least make it slightly more understandable. But then, don't you have to be digesting food and liquid to be able to produce any human waste? Don't they have to come first? So why have the food shelves been essentially left alone? Do people stock up on tins of spam that far ahead now? Or is it that their pantries and bathroom cupboards are now so overflowing with dunny paper there's no room for anything else? 
And how about those lowlifes who've been cleaning out the supermarket shelves and then flogging off exorbitantly priced sorbent at the markets or by the roadsides? There's karma coming for you, my friends, and I hope it's in the shape of a long-lasting bout of diarrhoea with all your supplies sold off and nary a discarded bit of cardboard in sight. What makes this whole episode even harder to understand is that not a couple of months ago, Australians managed to show their generous side during the bushfire crisis. I'm tipping a Venn diagram of the people who open their homes, their hearts and their wallets to those affected by the fires and the people who have spent the past couple of weeks clawing at each other's hair in supermarket aisles wouldn't show a great deal of intersection. But imagine if the two events had coincided. What would any members of both groups now be saying as traumatised sufferers came looking for comfort? Yes, here's a bed, some spare clothes and a meal, but whatever you do, don't have a crap. We can't afford it. These are strange days indeed, Finey. Perhaps the one comfort is that while Australians left, right and centre are losing their shit, good old Sky News is still producing a regular supply. Like that raging intellect, Rowan Dean, who, yep, you guessed it, managed somehow to link Toilet Paper Gate to his default climate change denialism. This is a timely reminder, he reckons, of what could happen if a Labor government was elected and implemented a net zero emissions target. Yep, totally makes sense. Not his theory, of course, which borders on insane, but about where all the dunny paper has actually gone. My conspiracy theory, Finey, is that it's been bought lock, stock and barrel by Sky News. After all, how else are they going to deal with a constant stream of crap pouring from that guy's mouth? Yeah, yes, you politicised it as well. You know, you know, I've got a theory. He's on... insane. Rowan Dean is insane. I've never listened to him. Oh. Seen him. Um, you know, I've got a theory on the toilet paper situation. Yeah, what is it? That the call to... Uh, probably on social media, of a need to stock up on toilet paper, has had many Australians look at their stock levels of toilet paper and realise that they just keep running too low, that they don't have any backup supplies. Like, we've always got a lot of toilet paper at home. It's just sort of natural that we have a strong backup. But I think a lot of people looked in their cupboards and decided... We're only good for a few days. What did you see? I mean, there's been that many videos, but the one I think that's done uh, got the most mileage is uh, the one in Chalora. Yeah, yeah. What about they've been charged? Those women. They've been charged with what? Public affray. Really. Really? As long as their toilet paper doesn't fray. Because I thought the I I, I, I thought the other woman didn't want to press charges. I love the manager comes in and off step away from that trolley, and he goes. And you hear off off camera, um, and he responds, "Yes, Michelle or somebody, call the police." Yeah, <laughs> but what about what about that scene which has already been made into a gift, which I think will do good business? The um, the woman seeking the paper saying, "I just need one roll," and the mother goes, "Not one roll, <laughs> <laughs> idiots." Yeah, it's not showing those people in the best light. All right, you can use newspaper. Uh, well, plenty of people have in the past. Stepped up and son only had squares of newspaper. Yeah, probably more cause to do it now, to be honest, in a symbolic sense. All right, uh, you ready to go? I'm ready. Okay, three, two, one, rant. I'm sad to say it because as a child I actually used to be somewhat taken by the notion of Moomba, but Moomba has so lost its luster, it means so little to so few Victorians 
that the time has come to put old Moomba to bed. This celebration by the, on the banks of the Yarra, the only time of the year where Victorians and I'm assuming no one else actually jumps into the Yarra, either in the much-fated but constantly disappointing Birdman Rally or as part of the Yarra Masters water skiing event, which has as its first prize, I think, cholera and E. coli virus. <laughs> it has become surely past its use-by date. Can I name this year's King and Queen of Moomba? Is it Bert Newton? Did Kevin Bartlett get it this year? Because they're really the last ones I do remember. Them and Denise Drysdale and Ozzy Ostrich and Molly Meldrum. But it goes back a long way. And Moomba, of course, is an in Aboriginal word. I imagine it is. I know that there's been jokes made of what it means. But for most of its existence, Moomba was hardly a celebration of Indigenous Australia or Indigenous Victoria. And I don't think now a sort of apologetic uh, acknowledgement of the Wangjiri people who once occupied these lands that are now being used on Sideshow Alley for five-year-olds to put ping-pong balls into rotating clowns' heads <laughs> makes up for lost ground. Moomba was celebrated, in inverted commas, air hyphens, over the weekend. Our celebration was at MCG at the MCG for women's cricket on International Women's Day, and also celebrating the fact that we could have a weekend of mild weather and sunshine while Sydney was submerged under 500 mils of water from during the week. No, Moomba needs to be put to bed for once and for all. There's no Roomba for Moomba anymore, <laughs> <laughs> nice alliteration. Uh, yes, sad, but unfortunately true. I'm inclined to agree with you. In fact, I don't think I've even been to it since I was about 19 years old. I mean, what is Moomba? So long ago, what I is, think I saw Uncanny X-Men play. What is Moomba? It's sort of a, a dissipating crowd along the banks of the Yarra waiting for idiots to fall in the Yarra. Do they still televise the Birdman rally? Does anyone do that? It used to be on Channel 10. It was it, huge, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, and... and I don't know. Does it still exist? Yeah, no, I think it does because I saw someone tweeted something about um, uh, there was a protest or something of, of sort of climate change protest. I, I, I like the way the in the olden days, there used to be a good prize attached to it. The field was evenly divided into sort of super nerds in, in ergonomically designed things from Swinburne University that were actually supposed to travel. Yeah. And others that made no effort to travel whatsoever, but <laughs> were humorous. Yeah, I, I do remember one year where one guy actually did go like a, a fair way, and it was just people pandemonium, people going. But I, I saw people sort of falling back into the structure. <laughs> <laughs> Look painful. <laughs> no, you're right, Moomba. Uh, she ain't what she used to be. Yeah, Fair, fairy floss and polluted water. That's all it is to me. All right, no good rant. Good rant. Did well. Um, all right, that just about wraps it up for this week. Uh, quick shout out to our wonderful sponsors, Fanny. It's not Moomba, it's New Year's Eve every night. That's a celebration night. No, forget it. It's Except just a Sundays. Great, it's just a great night every night. You get to, or afternoon, you get to Andrew's Burgers. And people really look forward to sitting on those benches out the front and enjoying just sick. Is there any better feeling than being really hungry 
and having your hands on the brown paper bag with the Andrews burger in it. Oh. The first bite. It really is a sense of expect. That's a sign of great food. Actually, that's my great rap for Andrews at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Tell me you're not, your heart, you just love that first bite. Half the places I eat now, I'm nervous about the first bite. Not this joint. Oh, I can feel one coming on. And the last, 144 Bridport Street. And the last bite is just as beautiful as the first. And uh, I love it. I love it. I really I, do. Nothing makes me salivate more than a good house renovation. Yeah, if I tell you what. If we hit the big time with this podcast, I'm going straight to Nick Spartels of West Point Properties to build me my dream home. I wonder what my dream home contains. I know it'll be built by him. That's a, a, oh, that much I can. A big you. home studio. I just want a larger um, study, really, seeing it's where I spend about ninety nine point nine percent of my time. I've always wanted a slide from the bedroom into a swimming pool. A slide. Yeah. Look, I'll have a second story bedroom. I'm just going to the missus. I'm going for a swim. In, on the slide, into the pool. Incidentally, our swimming pool, they're still working on it. Still not right. Yeah, I, I've, I've had a pool for five months now. Yeah. I hate swimming pools. Yeah, no, the, the, that mu- infamous mud rain was the 22nd of January. Haven't been able to swim in it since, and we're still waiting for it to get right. I now realise that my pool is situated under trees that drop tiny things like strings and seeds. And, oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. That's the final takeaway from this week's Footyology Podcast Summer Edition don't, Don't get, get a, a swimming pool. pool. Uh, thanks for your company. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, a big one next week. We'll uh, launch into our uh, our season proper episodes. And that means not just one, but two episodes per week. A preview and a review edition of every round of this upcoming AFL season. Cannot wait. Thanks for your company. We'll see you next week. <laughs>